0: Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to, to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So, before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable, and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Kate Ardern, the former director of public health at Wigan. I don't think I'm overstating it by saying that Kate is a legend in public health circles. We talk about the challenging journey Wigan has been on and how the Wigan deal culture has shaped her approach to public health. By the time Kate left Wigan last year, it had become a national beacon of good public health practice. Kate was also the lead for health protection and emergency planning and response across Greater Manchester, so we discussed what it was like being Manchester's answer to Chris Whitty. Kate is an honorary professor at the University of Salford, and in true educational form, she treats us to an amazing and entertaining history lesson on public health, from the original Fab Four in Liverpool, and no, that's not the Beatles, through to a very amusing anecdote about the late Baroness Thatcher getting To grips with the finer details of sexual health. Finally, we touch on end of life care, a difficult subject matter which is often neglected, but one which Kate cares a lot about. Let's hear from Kate. Kate, a very warm welcome onto the podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, but for people out there who might not know who you are, can you just say a little bit about yourself, please?
1: Well, firstly, Andrew, thank you so much for inviting me onto the podcast uh, because I have been following your podcasts uh, for a little while and they are absolutely fantastic, so it's a great privilege to be invited on to participate.
2: Thank um,
1: you. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm Kate Arden, I'm uh, I'm a doctor of, of uh, many years now, I qualified 36 years ago, um, and I was the Director of Public Health for Wigan uh, between May 2008 and uh, July of last year, so I was uh, for 14 years in that post and before that had quite a a very career in public health. I worked at a regional, -regional, sub-regional, smaller PCT level, uh, primary care trust level, Uh, worked in the old health authorities and I have a background uh, both as a health protection consultant um, so very much involved in the, if you like, the blue light bit of public health. Uh, and as a Chief Emergency Planning Officer. And I combined the Director of Public Health role in Wigan with being the Chief Emergency Planning Officer. So, you know, that means really sort of planning and responding to everything from small outbreaks of uh, diarrhoea and vomiting in nurseries, right through to uh, counter-terrorism incidents as well. So obviously working with the, the military and, and with the, the security services on those kind of uh, matters oh. uh, so yeah so quite a varied yeah. career and my clinical career as a doc um, I ranged from working in chest medicine through to anaesthetics I even did a stint in neurosurgery and psychiatry as well so quite wide although I'm not an expert in any of those sub- fields um, I, obviously I do have a, a sense of what goes on and an understanding of what goes on and some experience of, of the, the kind of uh, uh, issues that uh, my colleagues in those specialties have to deal
0: with. Wow. So just to to make it really clear for people, you're you're a medical medical doctor.
1: Yeah. You were a medical right. doctor
0: before going into public health in the council.
1: Well, public health is a specialty, just like yeah. surgery or psychiatry. So um, folks who decide to train in public health, I think the the one difference is public health, like pathology is a multidisciplinary specialty so uh, you will get directors of public health from a variety of backgrounds some of us are doctors some of us are, some come from a nursing background other colleagues come from environmental health officer background for example uh-huh. so it's a multidisciplinary field some are clinicians some come from a more academic background so there are people who have worked in academia who uh, move it or health intelligence who move it uh, move into being uh, a specialist in public health um, yeah. and that's good because public health actually is a really uh, you know if, if, if there's any specialty that has to relate to a number of different uh, areas particularly around health determinants if you think about education employment housing transport. The fact that so many of us come from a a wide variety of backgrounds is actually part of the strength of public health. And when I started, it was purely a medical specialty. But uh, I'm very glad I was, you know, somebody who very much advocated for the specialty to broaden out and to actually extend uh, to include colleagues from uh, other disciplines, because that actually adds to its strength and its diversity. Um, But we all go through the same training. We all have to go through five, you know, five years of higher professional training. We all have to have master's degrees in public health and epidemiology, and we all have to go through the uh, specialist exams of the faculty. And then once qualified, uh, whether we come from a medical, dental, nursing or or non-clinical background, We have to go through uh, annual appraisal uh, and uh, five yearly revalidation. So it's exactly the same for everybody. Um, But, yeah, it's a specialty.
0: Fantastic. I mean, I think for people out there who maybe weren't aware of that role, the director of public health role, certainly over the past couple of years, most people are now very aware of it. And we'll talk a bit more specifically about what you did in Greater Manchester, especially around, uh, over the past couple of years, but I, w- I want to start about your role in Wigan, just to talk about that in a bit more detail, because 14 years in in a, in that role, that that's pretty unusual, isn't it, to stay in the same place doing that role? And and I think really, I was thinking about you know your career, and I, I probably the Greater Manchester Devolution played a role in keeping it interesting and challenging for you, but we'll come to that later. But if we start with Wigan first, um, you know, you, you as you say, before your retirement last year, were the DPH in, in Wigan. So what did that role involve? Because um, I think this is the first time I've had a Director of Public Health on the podcast. So people might not know exactly what that role is all about in a practical sense. and And also, and I realise I'm piling up the questions which is very bad interviewing here but I know I know you can handle it um and just about the Wigan deal because people know about the Wigan deal so what what does what does public health do in that
1: well I suppose uh, I'll, I'll sort of just give a little bit of historical context to the role of the director of public health it's not a new role um we are the modern day uh, descendants of the old medical officers of health really interesting I was watching and I'm sure um uh, some listeners were watching last night on Channel Five uh, the Big Stink uh, uh, program, which uh, was about the um, the uh, events of 1858 in London uh, when there was a yeah. heat wave, c- awful combination of heatwave, sewage in the Thames, and of course cholera outbreaks. And medical officers of health actually date back to th- those times, that mid. Uh, 19th century time the very first medical officer of health and he's one of my great heroes uh, was a a guy called William Henry Duncan he was a Scotsman they always pioneer things Uh, but he was the uh, medical officer of health for Liverpool and so Liverpool uh, City Council uh, at that time uh, was very far forward thinking in Mm. terms of you know trying to get on top of how you tackle cholera epidemics. And uh, William Henry, I I guess, was uh, the epitome of that kind of modern multi-agency, multi-professional approach to public health. Not that he would have used any of those terms to describe it, but um, he was one of a quartet of people that I call the original Liverpool Fab Four. And they included Thomas Fresh, who was the wonderfully titled Inspector of Nuisances, or today's Chief Environmental Health Officer. Yeah. Uh, James Newlands, who was the Borough Engineer. I use James's handiwork every day when I get up, because uh, I live in Liverpool. Um, you know, if I use the shower, <laughs> go to the loo. Uh, he designed the sewage system and the wow. sanitation, the fresh water supply, absolutely crucial in terms of public health. Yeah. And then the last named was a woman, yeah. Yeah. Kitty Wilkinson. And Kitty came from, if you like, a, 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 quite a poor background. She was illiterate, I think she was a teenage mum, uh, but she understood the community. She was phenomenally intelligent. Uh, And indeed, had she had today's educational opportunities, would undoubtedly have been in a very senior position. But she was also a formidable organiser. And William, to his credit, recognised that Kitty uh, and her skills and talents was just as important as those of Thomas and James. And uh, he made her superintendent of the the public bathhouses and laundries. She'd actually set up the first one of her own bat in her own yeah. home uh, before he started. <laughs> the last of her uh, bathhouses and laundries uh, that she'd supervised closed in 1974. And you have to remember that was at a time, obviously, when they were set up, there were was no washing machines, there were no showers, yeah. nothing like that. But that phenomenal sense of organisation. Now, that quartet took Liverpool from having the worst health in in the country in a 10 year period to having some of the best health. And indeed, London copied Liverpool and appointed their own medical officer of health, John Simone, who went on to be England's chief medical officer. Now, of course, for listeners, all of that happened and was, you know, very much the role of local government, improving health and the medical officer of health role expanded dramatically uh, throughout you know once uh, that started in the mid uh, uh, mid uh, 19th century really focusing on health protection uh, mm. control of infectious diseases was the big thing to get on top of but also tackling you know sort of insanitary conditions decent home standards uh, air quality there was a whole range of health protection issues that they were very much in charge of all of this was happening a century before the founding of the NHS. Wow. And, in, and indeed, in 1947, when, when of course the NHS was set up, I think what people often forget was that local government and the local government services that the medical officers of health ran, which included at that time ambulance services, district nurses, health visiting, that actually health visiting is still part of the DPH role today. Um, Uh, And all of the the sort of community based services were just as much part of the NHS as nationalising the hospitals. And I think often people forget that. And it's perhaps worth going back and looking at the 1947 Act Um, for a, a time between 1974 and obviously 2013. Uh, public health was moved into the NHS and it became something called community medicine. And I think this was in a mistaken belief that actually we got on top of communicable diseases, which, of course, then we had the AIDS epidemic and Sir Donald Aitchison, uh, who was the CMO at the time. And there's a wonderful story about um, which Liam Donaldson, another former CMO, tells about Donald Aitchison. Um, He had to design all the. Uh, the famous AIDS campaign material of the 1980s. He also had to persuade Margaret Thatcher against her better instincts, probably, um, to go with a really hard-hitting campaign and to really get on top of what was a, you know, very uh, worrying and and alarming situation with a new emergent disease. And uh, one day she insisted on overseeing all, all of the material that was produced. And one day he got a phone call from Number 10 saying uh, the Prime Minister would like to see you, Sir Double. So he trotted across the road to Number 10, uh, went in and um, uh, uh, Mrs Thatcher had, Baroness Thatcher had all of the mate- his material in front of him, which she was looking at. And as he entered the office, she went, um, Sir Donald, I'm very glad you've come a- uh, uh, over. Uh, there are a few things I just want to ask, uh, ask some questions about. Uh, for instance, what is a dildo?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, exactly uh, When Liam actually told this story he was in the uh, Liverpool Philharmonic Hall giving a public lecture the Rus- one of the Roscoe lectures and needless to say it was packed needless to say that story brought the house down uh, I would say, live in Liverpool. Yeah. but uh, I guess a, a sort of wonderful illustration of well, you know, some of the things uh, Chief Medical Officers and even sometimes BPHs
0: You can <laughs> imagine you uh, can imagine Mrs. Thatcher's staff being uncomfortable answering that question if she might have asked it. One of them. Perhaps we should get the expert in. I can. <laughs> yes, I can um, just. So, I can just imagine so it. Don't, so, don't so that is. I mean, that. Kate, I think. Um. Yeah. That, that that's a wonderfully told history and story there, and just the storytelling in helping people appreciate public services is so important in in helping people understand how things originate. So we we owe a lot to Liverpool's original fab for we it we sounds do indeed,
1: like... we do indeed andrew you know when i when i was i was doing some work uh, on the transition back to to our home and local government uh, it, 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 around the, the lansley act uh, of obviously of 2013 and uh, i was part uh, i was acting as a special professional advisor to the department of health uh, uh, in, in the run up to that Uh, as part of the transition team and one of my tasks was actually to uh, modernize or uh, you know sort of envisage what the job description for a director of public health would be moving back into local government so i went back and read duncan's biography and i was sort of reimagining what it would look like for a 21st century person um interestingly, I think he would, you know, if he was around today, he would recognise the role that I used to do. There, there are, if you like, four key components to public health that a director of pu- public health is statutory responsible for. And this is written into the um, Health and Social Care Act 2012. So uh, uh, directors of public health are what we call statutory chief officers of local yeah. government, which gives us. Uh, a real degree of influence and authority, but also public duty as well. And there are uh, four components. There are uh, a duty to improve the health of the population. That includes help trying to reduce health inequalities, very important. Um, health protection. And obviously I've mentioned communicable disease control, but also environmental hazards, preparing for major incidents that would have a health protection con- Component, very much part of that. Giving advice to health and care services, and note I say health and care services, about planning. So, you know, understanding, you know, doing the horizon scanning, make interpreting statistics and analysing those. But also, uh, I think, very importantly, and this sometimes gets missed out understanding the story of place and being able yeah. to interpret that from a public health perspective. So there are a number of core competencies we have to have. The fourth component, I would, uh, I would absolutely say, is really advising and maximising the opportunities to improve health through uh, the, uh, if you like, the contribution of health determinants. And I think yeah. often when we think about health, of the health of us as individuals or the health of communities, we get very <clears throat> sort of understandably focused on the state of the health service, and the health yes, and care service.
0: Yes, yes,
1: yes. Whereas actually the, the bigger things that actually contribute to our health are our homes, our families, uh, whether we work or not, the level and quality of our education, the, yeah. level, the, the quality of our environment. I think, you know. Yeah
0: very understandably. No, Kate, I I completely agree. One of the things I've written about myself is about how councils actually have a lot more influence over the wider determinants of health, the social determinants of yep. health, than hospitals ever will. And it's so important that people appreciate that. You know, it, as you and I have both been involved in discussions <laughs> with the Reform Think Tank recently about how yep. it it just tends to be a very medicalised approach to things when we're talking about reforming health and care, whereas actually, if we want to get into prevention properly, then it really needs to be focused on the wider determinants. But I, I do want yeah. to get into that in a bit more detail. But okay. just before I do, I want you to tell me a little bit about the specifics of Wigan and the Wigan deal and exactly how how that works.
1: Well, Wigan is a fa- is is a fascinating place for all sorts of reasons. Um, I, I think people often think Wigan's a very small place, when in fact it's actually a rather big place. You know, hmm. we, there's a population of 325,000, which is bigger than the number of UK cities.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's not big. just Wigan as well. It's, you know, it's, it's,
1: it's Lee and it's Ashton and yeah. Makerfield as well. So the borough is actually, you know, 75 square miles in in, in terms yeah. of its. You know, And it also, in spite of its industrial legacy, and obviously it was at the heart of the the Lancashire coalfield, and famously, of course, Orwell wrote The Road to Wigan Pier, which, by the way, is a small jetty on the Leeds-Liverpool canal. It is not Brighton Pier, although often I have people from the south of England who are looking for something rather more um, sort of more like a seaside pier than,
2: yeah. than
1: the Wig, uh, what Wigan Pier actually is. But um, it's now got the uh, largest amount of green space and blue space in Greater Manchester. And in fact, it's the second biggest borough in Greater Manchester after Manchester, uh, the city of Manchester itself. So it's it's a really important uh, borough because of its connectivity. It's on the east, uh, uh, the West Coast Mainline. Uh, so it's um, you know it borders Lancashire, it borders Cheshire, it borders Merseyside, and has yeah. that sort of centrality in the northwest of England, if you like. Um, well, the reason I went to work in Wigan was because I was. A, My previous job had been in the old Northwest Regional Health Authority. And I was always puzzled about Wigan because I had an overview of, you know, how public health was doing um, uh, across the region. And Wigan always seemed to me to be underperforming, Mm -hmm. um, which was of of a real, you know, really interesting. And when they advertised the the director of public health job, Wigan, rather like Liverpool had been, you know, in the mid 19th century, Advertised it as a joint appointment. And so this was five years before the Lansley reforms, um, as a joint appointment between the council and then the then old primary care trust. So, in effect, it was a, uh, and that having worked with councils, I thought this is great. So, this is my great opportunity. So, I applied and I applied for a number of reasons. A, that they had the vision to do that, but also um, there was a challenge about.
0: There was a job, there was a job of work to do. There was a job
1: to be done, there was a real challenge, and there was a challenge around the, uh, I actually asked a a very wise uh, old owl, as I like to call them, uh, Chris Bentley, um, who was at that time working for DH on their uh, national support teams, to go in and do a peer review on Wigan, on health inequalities. and. Mm. I said, I, I know what's causing people to die too young. It's heart disease. It's you know, it's not. It's the things that you expect to see often. But what I want to understand is why. What's going? What's what's the story behind the statistics, if you like? Mm. Um. So Chris went in and did a four day review, and he had a team with him. And sure enough, you know, there was nothing. You know, that surprised me about what he found in terms of the statistics. And indeed, it was actually rather helpful to have a, an external, if you like, set of prescriptions to go in into the job. But I took him to lunch and said, um, uh, right, Chris, you, you, you tell me what's going on, but why?
2: Yeah. He
1: said, one, one word, Kate, Fatalism.
2: Fatalism.
1: Fatalism. They don't believe anything will ever change, so they don't see why they need to do anything different. Wow. Now, how often have you heard that, Andrew? Around not just Wigan, that is, you know, you hear the towns who are left behind, all of those communities who are left behind that post-industrialisation. There was a, a there was a poverty of expectation yeah and um, when
0: was this kid just to this was 2008
1: so 2008 right so yeah this was before the deal and i i sort of i'm
0: not and not a very helpful time with the background of the financial crash no, and everything exactly, like that as well exactly. so
1: but this was sort of long serving. so i said well where's the fatalism and uh, it was very interesting it wasn't local people who were de- desperate because they'd gone out and talked a little bit to, to, to ordinary citizens they wanted things to change, but didn't know what to do. Mm. Uh, so I was reminded a little bit of the situation in North Karelia in the, in the late 1970s, where the community had turned to their regional government and said, too many of us are dying of heart disease and stroke. What are we going to do about it? And it was that sort of, you know, there was murmurings. Um, it wasn't, interestingly, the elected members who also were very keen to do something. It was actually coming from the professionals at the t- who were around at the time. Mm. and there was a bit of you know sort of sometimes people get into a a sort of mindset of well we'll do things to suit ourselves because we can't change anything for it and there was quite a bit of that so quite paternalistic um, I was the only really visible uh, apart from one other uh, person who uh, Kate who was uh, another Kate actually who was the um, uh, a GP who headed up community services in the, in the mm-hmm. PCT. Um, but we were basically the only two visible female medical leaders. This is mm-hmm. 2008. So quite an in- interesting, quite paternalistic, um, quite sort of inward looking. And yeah. the deal, uh, I think what changed and what w- was interesting was the political leadership were, were going through a journey. Keith Cumliffe, who is now the deputy leader of the council um, and a mental health nurse by background, uh, came into post as the portfolio holder for adult social care and health at the same time I joined. And of yeah. course, we we realized we were we were angry about the situation and wanted to do something. So I mean, yeah, we're pragmatic activists, the pair of us. Um, yeah. So there was a bit about, you know, a, a happenstance of right personalities coming in. And change of personnel coming in. But also, there was work going on with um, Nesta Creative Councils, Mm -hmm. Um, so it started in in 2010. So this is the genesis, if you like, of the deal. I was bringing in the North Karelia and the Marmot experience. Michael Marmot was reporting on Fairer Society Healthy Lives and uh, Lord Peter Smith, who's sadly, very sadly, no longer with us, who was the leader of the council, had been going on his own journey, I think, around you know, moving from dependency to empowering people. So he, uh, David Mullenex, who's now the council leader, Keith and I, and a number of others, went to hear uh, Michael Marmot present his interim findings for Fairer Society, Healthy Lives. And I remember coming out of that, he came up to Manchester, and Peter, who was a very tall man, about you know, well well over six foot nine, five foot one, um, looked down at me as we came out and said. Kate, Barmot, public health in Wigan—that's how we're going to do it, isn't it? Yes, Leader. <laughs> which was
2: very good.
1: Uh, you know, was—it was good, but it—it it did mean, I think, all of us going on a journey. So there was a, a journey for the politicians in terms of, you know, the kind of conversations they were starting to have with citizens, and being prepared for citizens to challenge, which was very yeah. important. Uh, similarly, the professionals, the manage- managers had to go on a similar journey. And we started working with Robin Farrow, who's a, a, an anthropologist. Yeah. And it, uh, this was really important, I think, to. Um, I've always said the NHS should have a chief anthropologist to teach it about how to work with people and understand people, yeah. which that may sound, you know, sort of a bit cheeky, but is absolutely absolutely true
0: no I, i'm familiar with robin and his work and i think it is so important
1: well we we that we started training people and, and adult social care was the if you like the, the sort of starting ground for this so we started to train people in how to have a deal-based conversation in other words mm-hmm. take the assumptions off stop doing ticks tick box assessments so there was a, a, a real sort of a bit of risk taking here on the part of the council and it was all about a response to austerity because once austerity came in we could have gone down the usual route of salami slicing and that would have been inevitably the prevention elements that went actually our experience was to do the opposite uh, we would need to try and uh, you know you don't control demand by stopping prevention You need to actually you need to actually move upstream. This was very much the lesson, again, from North Karelia's approach to to cardiovascular disease, which has been very much at the part of part of the heart of Wigan element of the deal. Uh, But also investing in local people and investing in their ideas, having a grown-up conversation, being transparent about what we can and can't do as a council. Yeah. Uh, so creating the, new, the Deal for Communities Investment Fund was very much part of that and investing in people's ideas,
0: which yeah. enabled
1: them the, to leave the other funding in from ex- externally. But those ideas and those programmes being part of the delivery of better outcomes. And that is is, is really at the heart of this, that empowerment agenda.
0: And how much of a focus was there on public health and achieving those public health outcomes
1: very much at the ho- i mean we we wrote public health outcomes you know into the assessment for uh, people going through for deal for communities investment funding for example okay yeah but what i wasn't doing you know these are the outcomes i want you to achieve but what i wasn't doing was telling people how to do it yeah which is i think is a really important yeah i mean where they where evidence of things that were was important uh, you, you bring that in but you localize it you adapt it you work with the asset you've got in the place and, yeah. and amongst the people don't try and fit your local circumstances into some you know ideal it, Wigan is very different. You, each place has its own narrative, but it also has its own assets. And you need to think creatively about how you use those assets. Often when we have, you look at, say, National Health Improvement Programmes, they're very much one size fits all.
0: Uh, and, completely. And, I, I, I completely agree. It's, I it's got to be a
1: certain agree. set of professionals or a certain, you know, you've got, instead of actually saying, well, OK, what have we got in our community? Who's got the skills? Are there things we can add to their skill set that would extend their role even more? So we worked with the Royal Society of Public Health using their level two uh, uh, health improvement qualification, which of course is really important in terms of that knowledge and skill set and empowerment of communities. And we to complete as part of the deal, we ended up having, and there still are in Wigan over 23,000 community health champions of one sort or another. And the council is actually is able to be a training centre for the RSPH. We found that was a really good approach, A, because it's, uh, you know, it's a short, it's only sort of seven, eight hours training, so it can be done quickly, mm. But also you can, you can add things on and, of course, create, very quickly a community network and that was very empowering you know we had we've got young health champions um uh, 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 one uh, of our young health champions joseph went on to actually win the national uh Hygier award on uh, his for his work on sepsis his right. motivation for joining his sister had tragically died of toxic shock syndrome and he wanted yeah. along with her friends to do something to commemorate her life but also to warn people about the dangers of things like toxic shock so working with people's enthusiasms passions yeah. and in someone like Joseph's case uh, you know really tragic event that happened in the family those working with people's motivation and supporting them and giving your expertise in a way that's being an expert on tap as opposed to being an expert on top yeah that has that is very much part of that the the deal so you know create you know really sort of supporting people's enthusiasms and you might be doing it through resources it might be through extra training it might be just support and advice but actually you know not trying to control what they do but rather um in a sense strategically harness that creativity to deliver better outcomes.
0: Indeed, we're about 40 minutes in and we're on question one, so I need to do I need to do better at trying <laughs> to get us through the questions here a little bit. So, uh, uh, so I want to just wrap up on Wigan and talk about yeah. your your Greater Manchester role. So, so in Wigan, really, I think what I'm hearing is the importance of allowing local communities to choose what the response is within reason and having that that kind of acceptance that it's not a one size fits all. And that actually chimes very much with the previous podcast interview, which was with Mark Smith, who's the director of transformation in Gateshead, and his philosophy was, bespoke by by default in terms of public services and I I can tell that that's something that you're that you would really subscribe to so Kate I want to move on now to talk about your role across greater Manchester particularly over the last couple of years because anybody in Manchester listening to this will probably recognize your voice it's a podcast so they won't necessarily see your face but I know that you were very very active during that could you just tell us a little bit about what your role over the past couple of years has been?
1: Well yes uh, I mean uh, right from 2013 um, one of the things great, uh, Greater Manchester had to have it uh, along with other um, similar areas was a lead DPH for um, health protection and emergency planning and this was someone who co-chaired the um, Local Health Resilience Partnership, which is the emergency planning forum for the NHS. Now, in Greater Manchester, needless to say, we did it a little bit differently because of the nature of devolution, but also our, you know, fantastic relationships within Greater Manchester. So the Greater Manchester Resilience Forum um, worked with the uh, Local Health Resilience Partnership and um, the uh, chief emergency NHS planner, Colin Kelsey, and myself were both, Um, uh, We co-chaired the LHRP, but we're also members of of the Resilience Forum. So when COVID hit, we already had a long history of working together uh, uh, as a multi-agency planning and response forum to a number of health protection incidents. Indeed, we set up a really good high consequence infectious disease pathway in Greater Manchester in response to Ebola. Um, Not that we'd had cases, but what we'd obviously, but what we'd set up was a really good multi-agency response for any kind of, you know, untoward uh, communicable disease coming in through, for example, Manchester Airport, uh, Mm. uh, which worked really well. And actually, uh, so when COVID hit, we immediately went into uh, the uh, response mode. We declared a major incident. We set we Uh, pivoted the uh, Resilience Forum into being the strategic coordinating group. And very helpfully, the mayor, because my role was uh, a role on behalf of 10 authorities uh, agreed by the uh, 10 chief execs in 2013, and therefore was answerable to the combined authority. Um, The mayor, uh, obviously Andy Burnham, uh, who had previous experience uh, with swine flu, when he was uh, then Secretary of State for help, um, recognised very quickly that he, what he needed to do was to actually convene the political leadership of Greater Manchester as well. So he set up what was called the COVID Emergency Committee, and that met fortnightly. Uh, at the height of COVID, it was weekly. Um, all 10 council leaders, Andy, uh, the deputy mayor, uh, Bev Hughes, uh, and supported by a number of chief officers including myself so mm-hmm. what i did was to act as the like the public health spokesperson for um, the combined authority for the scg obviously you know working with my fellow dphs clearly if there was something going off in bolton it you know, I wouldn't speak for Bolton. The Bolton DPH would, And yeah, yeah. Louis would speak for Bolton. Uh, Ditto, you know, in Salford, it would be Moona, uh, who's the Salford DPH, who spoke if it was a Salford based thing. But things that were around Greater Manchester, then I was very much the spokesperson for. I was the, yeah. the advisor uh, to the emergency committee.
0: And, and in press I... conferences and things, you were the yeah, expert that stood. I did. You, I you did. were. You know, people would have been used to seeing on national TV, Chris Whitty in manchester it was kit order it,
1: it, well, it was in greater manchester and I, I think that was my previous experience of having been you know worked in swan so it was very much you need trusted consistent messaging and somebody who appears regularly so yes it's not you know so the, the public get to know you if you like so yes i appeared with uh, with Andy at his press conferences when he wanted a public health expert there. But I was also a regular on BBC Radio Manchester and, the, you know, huge thanks to them. They were just fabulous all the way through because they would always bring me on to the breakfast show um, at the eight o'clock slot, which is, the, you know, prime, prime
0: slot. yeah.
1: Um, and Becky Want, who was the uh, presenter for Uh, much of the time and then more latterly Michelle Dignan were just absolutely brilliant in terms of um, interviewing me so you know I get to hear some Vox Pops as well you know so they'd go out and uh, play me some Vox Pops around how people were feeling and you know and ask me to respond to that but yeah amusingly I was always introduced as you know, we've got Kate back, and she's great at Manchester's answer to Chris Whitty. To which <laughs> the answer always was, yes, except I'm, I'm a woman. I'm at least a foot shorter and I've got rather more hair. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it uh, was so there was always a there was always a little bit of banter as well and a bit of humour. But it's so, I mean which is important, the, I think. That, you
0: know, that role needed the sort of energy that you clearly. I mean, even though this is a podcast, it will be, it will be. Beaming out of people's earphones as they listen to this, the energy that, and enthusiasm and kind of I can I can sense a can do attitude to things, you know, and that very authentic way of communicating that you have is so important in this because you can, as many of the representatives and politicians involved in COVID have found out that if, if you don't have that authenticity and the ability to talk straight to people, you do come a cropper.
1: You do, and it was it was sort of uh, you know uh, the comms comms folks had you know a lot of faith in, in in me doing things you know they they know I'm good at answering questions and and sort of uh, you know giving expert knowledge in a way that's accessible. I always listened to that's it. You know, fantastic communicators like Brian Cox or Maggie Adair and poking. Pocock, you know, people are, are Alice Roberts, people who are consummate experts in their field, but are able to put it across in a way that's infusing, yeah. inspiring, never dumbing down, but definitely accessible. Trying to, trying to sort of, you know, my less expert way, but trying to, trying to, to do that. The other thing I did also throughout the uh, uh, COVID pandemic was, and this was organised actually with Wigan council comms but clearly um have relevance right across greater manchester i did a fortnightly facebook live q a for the public yeah and they could submit questions in advance and it gave me an opportunity to sort of you know tell local people about you know the state of covid in the borough changes to national policy things that were going on in greater manchester then answer some questions that have been uh, sent in and then take live questions Um, you know and I did it half just half now you you did normally spin on a little bit longer than that I I was always very clear Andrew to say when I didn't know because I think experts saying I don't know is as important as saying you do know but also when I needed to sort of refer it on to other people and we would put a frequently asked questions um, update uh, and we would update on. We'll try and get back to individuals with, with with responses if they needed an individual response. But also, we put the Q and A session on our YouTube as well, and that averaged um, between 16 and 25 thousand views on YouTube, which was really quite you know wow. interesting. And I got some really good feedback from that because um, you know I had people saying for older people who were isolated, being able to you know, switch on to that uh, uh, and get some honest advice. And it was really helpful. It, it really helped to demystify things.
0: It certainly does. And I, I think there's something very interesting there about coming across as accessible and I don't want to say simplifying, but making the description of what's going on understandable. That feels like something that comes very naturally, but actually, the only reason you're able to do that is your years of experience and understanding of your your topic. And it's the same with any communicator. The really successful ones who can simplify things and can express things in a way people will understand. It's only because they've been on the journey of Mm -hmm. learning all the complicated stuff, reaching a level of understanding of all the complicated stuff, that they can then break down and simplify. You don't jump from barely knowing something to being able to, to explain it succinctly and accessibly.
1: No, and I think it's also being open to being asked questions as well. Yeah. Um, and I was always f- fascinated about, about the, the, the wonderful quality of questions that I got asked by the public. People have gone away and really read and done their research and uh, you know, I, you know, it was it was humbling actually
2: yeah.
1: um, to be asked such amazing questions by, uh, and I, I thought, well, you know, it, whatever else I've done in my time in Wigan, you know, the questions I'm getting from yeah. citizens just shows how empowered they are, rightly so. <laughs>
0: indeed, indeed, Kit. I'm going to have to move us on a, a, a little bit because I've got a couple of uh, things here I want to ask you about in the time we have. So. Um, you're co-chair of the reform think tanks reimagining health program i'm involved in that as well as as an expert advisor and we we've met each other there a few times but what are the big questions that reimagining health program is asking because we're you and i we've kind of touched on wider health and care issues but what's that program all about
1: i think And one of the reasons I I was very excited and honoured to be asked to get involved with reform was I think reform come at health uh, from a very different perspective uh, from, say, one of the highly respected um, health think tanks. Because they're coming at it from the perspective of health being much wider and a broader issue than the NHS. So, so,
0: so without without naming some of those think tanks i 'm sure we can all guess. I think the point you 're making is that reform are not captured by correct. any any uh, yeah. institutions or or pre preordained ideas
1: yeah they 're coming at it with a really fresh pair of eyes, yeah. and I think also reimagining health is part of um, you know, a whole series looking at reimagining Whitehall reimagining the whole of the the, the public service world that, that that fits very much with if you like a uh, public health uh, health wellbeing uh, agenda which of course by its very nature particularly if you're getting into health determinants has to go far outside the health and care system so I think for me what's really exciting about reform some of the big questions is what's the role of health in place
2: yeah.
1: how do you actually shift the conversation on health away from, if you like, the, the nuts and bolts of, you know, however important it is, A&E waits or ambulance time, waiting times, into what um, Derek Wanless was trying to get uh, us to think about in the early 2000s. Derek Wanless, for, for listeners, was um, sadly no longer with us, but he was asked by uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown to look at the model of health and care in um, uh, in the UK, and he did a huge amount of work looking at international comparisons. Um, he was a banker, interestingly, by uh, by background. He was the managing director of the NatWest Bank at the time, so you know he was looking at financial sustainability as well. And he was very clear that we had to move the dial in upstream into uh, prevention. And I don't, by that, mean secondary prevention, Andrew, as important as that is for the health service to get it right, but into what he described as the fully engaged scenario. And I guess, um, although that sounds a little jargony, that is very much what Wigan has tried to do with the deal, that kind of empowerment engagement and um, channeling resource into citizens. Uh, being much more, um, you know, in, in, empowered to look after their own health, but also support them in doing in, in doing that. So I think reform has the opportunity to revisit Derek Wanless's work. I think take that in the context of Michael Marmot's uh, work on Fairer Society, Healthy Lives, and indeed the Marmot Report 10 years on, and look at how we maximise the assets of individual Place and that that's the people of the place. It's buildings, it's infrastructure. What do we need to invest in that would actually get better uh, health determinants? And I think you know, big conversation that's going on across the north of England is our transport infrastructure. Yeah, that is a key health determinant. If you look at things like um, you know the tragedy of that of the toddler who died in in Rochdale, for example. Decent homes, something that <laughs> William Henry Duncan was, uh, you know, tackling, it's still an yeah. issue. That, yeah. You know, it's no use patching someone up in hospital if they've got chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can treat them, uh, give them steroids, whatever, and then send them home to a cold, yeah. damp, moldy home. What you've got to do is. If you want to stop them coming in as an emergency mission, you've got to tackle the housing issue.
0: I think you're, you're entirely right. I think the the worm is beginning to turn a little bit on, on this in terms of certainly at a council level, the appreciation of the, uh, of the importance of place and the connection between a council's efforts to make a place and their efforts to support people, yes. because traditionally sometimes i would say traditionally those two have been quite siloed you've got one part of the council that's focused on infrastructure economic development all that you've got another bit that focuses on public health children's social care adult social care all that but actually with things um with all its faults um things like the leveling up fund for instance not talking about the fund itself but about some of the wonderful ideas that councils have brought forward to get that funding um they're very much about making sure that a council's investment in physical things supports the well-being and general uh, not just prosperity but happiness of of its people as well and that that's something which we're doing a lot of at mutual ventures and we're just finding it extremely interesting and fascinating because there's a whole capital budget there which you can which people are now thinking more more innovatively about how they use
1: You've got to think. You've got to think creatively about about those kind of budgets. I think very interestingly, uh, Wigan Council um, brought its uh, social housing stock. We had uh, a single arm's length uh, landlord, um, uh, Wigan Lee Homes, that was brought back into the council. And if you think about it, being able to have um, you know those that housing stock mm. and those individuals back as council tenants. Interestingly, it was housing policy put under the director of adult social care and health and linked to homelessness. Um, And indeed, the uh, assistant director for housing, uh, who's a fantastic lady called Jo Wilmot, uh, social care by background. Um, The one of the people who works for her is is public health trained. Uh, um, David uh, actually worked for me (laughs) uh, and he was the drugs and alcohol commissioning lead as well. So, you know, very much a sort of public health approach to housing policy is possible when you start to think about housing as an asset, which is about improving people's lives. And we've always said there are enough beds in Britain, but they're in people's homes. So that investment in things like domiciliary care, supported accommodation, aids and adaptations, rehab, uh, and reablement are absolutely critical if we're going to to actually get on top of you know healthcare demand
0: completely agree and i think we could record an entire new podcast just on that topic but we haven't we haven't got time right now there's one more thing i want to ask you about before wrapping up and uh, it's something which i'm Uh, particularly interested in as well because my mum's a a, a volunteer in Marie Curie and I've been involved in conversations with you about end of life and you've emphasised the importance of end of life care. Can you say a bit more about that because it's really about appreciating a person's whole life as well as how it ends?
1: It is and I, I think when we were looking at preventable mortality in Wigan uh, we've always taken the sort of we'd always taken a, a very much marmot approach of start well, live well, age well, yeah but uh, I said this, we're missing the fourth component here, which is dying well, and we don't like to talk about that in, in, yeah. in modern society uh, I think even Victorians, though it's
0: one of the few things that's guaranteed to happen to everybody yes
1: it's, it's death and taxes, isn't it yeah you know, so um you know, the Victorians did it far better for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. Um, so as part of our preventable mortality strategy and approach, we also thought about how we uh, enable people to have a good death. Um, and I think it's, we shy away from that. And I think end, the end of life pathway is incredibly important. Far too many people die in, where they don't want to die. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody should be dying on, you know, unless it's a very, very exceptional, unusual circumstance. No one should be dying on a, a trolley in a corridor in a hospital. Um. You know, we should be enabling people to die where they want to die with dignity and with respect and mm. with all of that kind of, you know, sort of support for bereavement and celebration of that individual's life as well as as far as possible. And I, I think in uh, many of the conversations that I had around, you know, sort of demand on hospitals and demand on this, we're not talking about and not seeing you know, places like our hospices, our palliative care services, um, end of life as part of that system. And uh, I think what was very interesting, my colleagues who run the uh, crematorium services in in, in, in Wigan, uh, you know regularly have creme open days and they you know they're there to answer questions immensely popular
2: wow.
1: and people going in getting their questions answered being able to sort of understand the processes and what happens similarly with the registrar services as well and uh, having that as part of the conversation around you know dying well in the borough yeah, it's really, really important, you know, has been really, really important, I guess, emphasised probably by, you know, uh, people dying of COVID, for example, yeah. over the last yeah. few years. But really important, I think, to, you know, de-stigmatise having some of those conversations, making sure we've got good bereavement support services in place as part of our our mental well-being strategy and yeah. allowing people time to grieve. But seeing the end-of-life pathway as not something that's separate or over there or different, you know, I, I, it, it, uh, it, it irritates me beyond belief that, you know, hospices are still very much funded as charities. And yeah. whilst that's great, when they're charities, it means they're not seen as part of the, the entire system. And yet they couldn't are really, integri- they're really integral. And, and I
0: couldn't yeah. agree. I couldn't agree more. Yet. And I, I know that the last time we spoke, I mentioned you mentioned bereavement support there, which is really yes. important as well. So um, one of the things that I'm going to talk about my mom more than I've ever talked about her on one of these podcasts. <laughs> but I'm really proud of this, this innovation, which she she piloted in. Northern Ireland. She's a volunteer counsellor at Marie Curie and a volunteer at a local National Trust property and she came up with the idea of doing Marie Curie walk and talk bereavement counselling at the National Trust and actually Marie Curie and the National Trust have now come together and said that they think this is a great idea and there's there's been some media interest around it and the last time we spoke you highlighted that that was really kind of very Wigan deal centric or you, it, it was very in tune <laughs> with that because it's yeah. making use of assets
1: it is it's use, it's making use of your you know your heritage and culture and green space asset to yeah. to actually you know national Trust are fantastic i mean I, i'm a member and I'm a huge huge supporter of the national trust but you know every borough has its assets like that you know and, yeah. and um, they may be run by big organizers you know big voluntary organisations like the National Trust or they might be smaller ones that are run by the council or local VCSE sector they are huge assets to support things like bereavement and we, you know yeah. we have to get out of always medicalising some of this you, you mentioned but yeah. the, the over medicalisation yet yeah, there are times when things like counselling and psychological support you know are are appropriate But for most people, being able to have a friendly ear to talk to, to be part of the social circle, to get out into your green and blue space uh, and and feel the benefits of that are are really important. So I think what your mum's done is just an absolute, you know, that is the deal personified. Now, people like me should not, you know, when I was still in full time work, People like me should not be getting in the way of ideas like that. Those are the Mm. ideas. We shouldn't be going, oh, where's the randomised control trial? What we should be doing is say, this is brilliant. How do we support? How do we make that roll out? How do we adapt that for the assets of our particular place?
0: i completely agree okay i have a load more questions i feel like i need to get you back on maybe for for a a round two of this but as a last question for this particular conversation what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or social enterprise um, who wants to make an impact in the way that you have
1: i think i think be humble and learn from others yeah
0: um
1: you know i think you never stop learning um Be Aim to be a servant leader, not a heroic one, because you cannot do it all on your own. And I guess that was my early lesson from the original Liverpool Fab Four. They didn't all try to do it on their own. They did it as a team. Um, Celebrate, celebrate, some. you know, recognise you're going to get some challenges and, you know, develop your own sort of resilience on, on that. And also have a sense of self-worth that's not about your professional status or or your job title. I, I always said, when anyone, oh, you're the DPH wing, and I said, actually, every, my aim is every citizen is their own DPH. I just happen to be the person with the job title. So I think, you know, try and sort of, uh, and I guess something I really learnt moving back into into local government from the NHS In the NHS, I was celebrated for being an expert with lots of expert knowledge because that's the culture. Yeah. What you're celebrated for in local government is being a team player who delivers and who gives trusted advice. And I guess be willing to learn, be willing to adapt. Don't see it as a threat to your expertise if someone challenges you, because actually you you can learn something. But also, I, I think I'll, I'll sort of finish, uh, you know, sort of piece of advice that um, uh, if people want to read more about the Wigan deal, there is the fantastic independent report that King's Fund did on it, which yes. is on their website. Isn't it? it's, it's a very, very, very good read. Yeah. It's a very good read. Chris Naylor, who was the principal researcher on that, um, gave me a, a wonderful bit of feedback um, when he, he and Dan Wellings were doing the research. They'd gone out to talk to frontline adult social care staff and he came back and said, How how was how was you know, how was your day? And he said, I don't care what whatever else the deal has or hasn't done, what you what you have definitely done is given people their vocation back.
2: Wow.
1: And I think that is, you know, I think we It's an old fashioned word vocation, but it's I think it's at the heart of why people go into either the VCSE sector or indeed into public service. It ain't to make megabucks. It is to try and make a difference. So try and make a a difference. It might be a very small difference. Try and do it every day and celebrate that.
0: Brilliant. Kate, we'll have to draw to a close. Many thanks for your time.
1: You're very welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Oh, I love that. And I really enjoyed that conversation. There's so many things that you could pick out here to talk about, but I'll try and pick my favorite bits of that conversation. So the first is Kate's explanation of the Wigan deal. So we all think we know a bit about what the Wigan deal is, but I think that whole point about in response to austerity, it not just being a simple salami slicing exercise where preventative efforts would have probably been the first thing cut. And actually in Wigan, they decided to flip that on its head and actually focus on, on prevention and uh, trusting communities with funds. And um, huge elements of the Wigan deal have worked, and it is certainly a model which is being looked at. But from a public health perspective, I've never had it described so succinctly by the person who implemented it from a public health perspective. So very appreciated to Kate for that. My second point is around how Kate managed to connect with communities in Greater Manchester, in Wigan and Greater Manchester through that role as well. She's obviously expert, but comes across as extremely authentic as well. And let's think about how she achieves that. Kate is very open. She allows questions. When she doesn't know the answer, she says. She knows that people aren't stupid. They know that the person who has all the answers, doesn't exist. So Kate very clearly was the expert, but was quite happy to have questions asked unprepared and be clear about when she didn't know the answer. But such mastery of her subject she had that even in responding to questions where she didn't know the answer, she could still convey real gravitas and build confidence. And I think that is just masterful communication. And I think a related point here is that such mastery of your subject takes time. Some people think that they can quickly brush up on something and bluff their way through it. The cracks in that approach very quickly appear. So Kate may be retired from her Wigan role, but I really hope that this is not the last we will see of her. And I know it won't be really. She's the co-chair of a piece of work the reform think tank are doing on reimagining health and care. And I know that she will be incredibly influential there and bring a lot to that. And that's something I'm involved with as well. So I'm super excited about working with Kate on that. Um, she's going to take a bit of time to do some birdwatching, she says. But I think we will see Kate back and active and The world of public health needs people like Kate to stay involved and to share their expertise, so I am delighted that she chose to spend some time with me on the podcast. From a personal perspective, I'm also really pleased I got the chance to mention the piece of work my mum has done bringing Marie Curie and the National Trust together in Northern Ireland, and I think that type of collaboration between organisations is really important, so super proud of my mum, Helen, for the work that she has done on that. So that's all we've time for this week. Please follow us wherever you get your podcasts and hope to see you next time.